Welcome everyone to the podcast Unanswered Questions with Pastor Tim Cole. This is a podcast where we talk about tough theological and Christian living questions sent in by people just like you. Our hope is that listening will strengthen your confidence in God's Word, helping you to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. If you have any questions, please send them to questionsforpastortim at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Unanswered Questions with Pastor Tim Cole. And today the question that we've received is, can I trust my English translation of the Bible? So that's a very relevant question to this day and age when there are so many translations as opposed to a generation ago when, for example, there was very, very few Bible translations in English to be able to read, to be able to access uh, in the early 60s, for example, uh, the Lockman Foundation came out with what's called the New American Standard Bible. And it was um, very, very different from the well-known authorized version. And then um, in the 70s, around 1977 and 1978, the Zondervan Corporation out of Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, via a team of evangelical scholars from all denominations, uh, produced what's called the New International Version, or better known as the NIV. And uh, back in the day, it was known as a, a translation that went by the philosophy called a dynamic equivalent, a dynamic equivalent. So the translation, called the NIV, was a dynamic equivalent translation from the original languages of the Bible. Let's first talk about the original languages. That might be a way to establish this discussion on a good foundation. The Old Testament, or Jewish scripture, is primarily written in biblical Hebrew, or Hebrew language, although portions of the book of Daniel are written in Aramaic. Aramaic is a mixture of Hebrew as well as Middle Eastern languages that the Jewish people picked up when they were in captivity for 70 years in Babylonia. And in fact, Aramaic was the language that Jesus spoke. It was the national language of Israel or Palestine in the first century. It was the everyday language that people spoke. Hebrew, of course, was what their Bible was written in. And so the scholars, the scholars, the prophets, the sages, uh, they would be uh, reading in both Aramaic and Hebrew. And just for information's sake, when you place them together, an untrained eye thinks they're both the same because they use basically the same alphabet. It would be like placing English next to Spanish, perhaps on a single page, to a person who knows neither language. And the letters somewhat look the same. Same with Aramaic and Hebrew. But predominantly, the Old Testament is written in the Hebrew language, all three sections of the Bible, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. When we open up a page of the New Testament in the original language, we don't find Hebrew. We find something called Koine Greek. This is the language of the day, 
Um, it would be, in a sense, like English is spoken around the world today. Koine Greek means common, common people Greek, the language that everyone spoke, the language of business, the language in the marketplace, the language that you use in legal transactions, on receipts. It was the language most people spoke around the world. And this is due to the fact of the influence of Alexander the Great, who was from Macedonia, a portion or a section of Greece, and he it was who conquered the known world at the time, and he left his imprint, his culture, and his language all over the world. In fact, there are many, many, many cities today that bear his name, such as Alexandria, Egypt. He was not from Egypt. Again, he's from Greece, but he was victorious over the Egyptian army and thus left his imprint, his language, and a lot of the culture there. There is also a Bible written in Greek, uh, Old Testament written in Greek, in around the year 200 B.C. And we call it the Septuagint, that's the Old Testament written in Greek, or some term it the LXX, meaning 70 in Roman numerals, because it was allegedly translated by 70 Jewish scholars who knew Hebrew and they translated into their own spoken language of Greek because they lived in Egypt. So those are the original languages that uh, the Bible are based on, two basic languages. Not modern-day Greek, Koine Greek, common people Greek from the first century. And if you go to graduate school, and maybe some in uh, a undergraduate program, you can study these languages. You can study Hebrew, and you can study Greek, even though uh, the trend today is to leave out those languages as a part of the required study curriculum. But when I went to graduate school, and even for my postgraduate studies, uh, I was um, taught heavily in the area of the ancient languages of Hebrew and Greek. I majored in Greek, which allowed me in four years to take about 10 years worth of Koine Greek at different levels. And since then, I've uh, entered other educational programs and continued my study of the Greek language. So it's become very familiar to me. Uh, I read and preach from a Greek New Testament, and that's what I hold in my hand. And I find it's uh, a great tool to be able to use to communicate truth to the people of God, either in a teaching, preaching, or discipleship, or counseling situation. When it comes to translating the Greek language into English, or the Hebrew language into English, every translator is faced with a challenge. We're faced with a 2,000-year-old, sometimes 3,000-year-old gap, a gap between a first-century language and the language that people speak in the 21st century, say here in North America. Languages change. Words change. Concepts change. And as languages change, some Bibles fall out of use because the language used 300 years ago is that when the translation was done is no longer used. Today, we don't say bowels of mercy. Uh, we use another word to describe that. It's called compassion. But years and years ago, bowels of mercy perhaps was a more commonplace term that people understood. 
And now we'd like to head into the direct question. The Bible that I hold in my hand, or the Bible that you hold in your hand, in English, is it direct from the Greek and Hebrew? Is it word for word? Is it literal? And if not, what is it, and can I trust it? Now, these are good questions, because most people don't know much about Greek. They hear about it, and perhaps they've seen a few programs or read a few books that utilize the language. And perhaps you're even more confused now than you ever were. So uh, I can just, off the top of my head, think of about 10 different Bible translations in English that occur even today. Some are familiar with what's known as the RSV, the Revised Standard Version. Then there's the New Revised Standard Version. Then there's the Authorized Version, the so-called King James. King James was the king who obviously authorized his translation of the Bible from a very Anglican Church of England perspective. And you'll see that everywhere, even though much of the translation was based on the work of William Tyndale, probably 90%. And it was not a true translation. The King James Version is really a revision of a prior Bible. Um, <clears throat> I mentioned the NIV. Then there's the New American Standard by the Lockman Foundation. And now there is even a revision of the New American Standard. But since then, other Bibles have come into play. The message, for example, is not a translation. It's a paraphrase by one person. Then there's what's called the ESV, English Standard Version. And that's a revision of the revised version of the Bible produced in 1946. And it comes from a very complementary uh, perspective. Uh, all of the men on the committee were men, and it bears somewhat of a heavy-handed, in my judgment, view uh, when it comes to inclusiveness and gender. Uh, there are occasions where clearly the word should be human being, person, genderless, and they've chosen to translate it as man. But that's uh, a perspective that they um, share without hesitation and without apology. That's their perspective. It's a very popular Bible. Uh, it's called the ESV, and it is primarily a formal equivalent. That is to say, the translators, a team of scholarly men, translated according to a formal equivalent philosophy. What does that mean? Well, before I answer that, let's talk about some other Bibles that you may have in your hand. Another one uh, for a few years was known as the Holman Christian Standard Bible, produced by the Holman Foundation. Uh, it today is only known as CSB, or the Christian Standard Bible. It, too, is a formal equivalent translation of the Bible, produced by a team of scholars who uh, were able to produce a translation of a particular book of the Bible based on their specialty. For example, there are scholars whose main study is the book of Ephesians. Others know the book of Romans really well. In the Old Testament, there are experts in the book of Genesis or experts in the Psalms. And it is those people who are called upon to do the translating of a particular book along with other scholars. And it's never done by one person alone. Uh, I wouldn't recommend any Bible to anybody if it was only done by one person. What you need is a variety of people, I think men and women, scholars who know their stuff, who know their languages, are familiar with it, 
and can, t can count up 30 to 40 years of experience with this language to be in a position to make translation decisions. As I said, all Bibles, generally speaking, are produced by a committee of people who represent a wide variety of denominations. Now, let's talk about these two words, a dynamic equivalent versus a formal equivalent translation of the Bible. A formal equivalent is often known as a word-for-word -word translation, and others have even called it a literal translation. But we need to understand something. There is no such thing as a literal translation of the Bible. If someone tells you that, you automatically know they don't know what they're talking about. They are not familiar with the Greek or the Hebrew language. There is also no, no such thing as a word-for-word -word translation. It is virtually impossible to translate the words in the Greek New Testament word-for-word -word into an American sentence, an American paragraph, an American translation that people can understand. The gap is just too large. The rules of grammar and syntax are different from English to Greek. But what people, I think, mean when they say a word-for-word -word or a literal translation of the Bible is that they're not trying to give the sense of the Greek. They're trying to have a very accurate and very clear rendering of the Greek text. And so they follow the Greek as closely as possible. And there is some benefit to that. You run a lower risk of mistranslating. You run a lower risk of misrepresenting what the Greek is trying to say. And so while it has the benefit of perhaps being a little bit more accurate, on the other end, it runs the risk of not being clear, of being confusing. And that's always the challenge for a translator is we want to be clear to the language of our today, but at the same time, we want to be accurate. And it's a, it's a, it's almost a juggling act. Which was it, which is it going to be absolutely accurate and word for word, or is it going to be clear to the reader? Is the reader going to be able to pick this up and understand what is being said? And so the goal of the translator is tough. It's hard. It's to make a clear translation to people, a child, a teenager, a mom and dad, an older person, someone who at least has a grade level of at least maybe grade six, grade seven, will they be able to pick it up and read it and understand it? Uh, that's what every translator wants to do. And the challenge is, how do we remain accurate but clear at the same time? And if there is a, a margin of error or a tendency to err, the formal equivalent translations like the ESV and the Christian Standard Bible and, of course, the New American Standard Bible, they run the risk of being unclear or confusing. On the other hand, we have something called the dynamic equivalent, and it's received in many circles a bad name, a bad reputation. Uh, the translators of a dynamic equivalent try to give the sense of the Greek, not a word-for-word -word rendition of the Greek. They try to give a sense of the Greek, but they're not bound, they would say, by a 
so-called literal reading. What they want to do is be clear and accurate at the same time. And so uh, in this case, I would want to interject something and say, you know, if you're going to choose two different Bibles to do Bible study, that's great. Don't choose two ones that are dynamic equivalent or two that are formal equivalent. Have one of each. Be able to read the passage from two different perspectives. That will help, I believe, you to stay true to the text and yet understand what the translators are trying to say with that particular verse. So we're talking about two different categories of Bible. Uh, formal, better known as a word-for-word -word or a little translation. But remember uh, what we've said a few minutes ago. There's really no such thing. You cannot go word-for-word. -word. Uh, so the other uh, side of the track is the dynamic equivalent, of which the NIV is a classic example. And I can show you many, many errors that the NIV translators have made, in my judgment, because they leave out connectives between paragraphs. For example, in Romans uh, 1, verse 18, the Greek text begins with a little connective called gar, G-A-R. That helps you to connect what Paul has been saying in verses 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 of Romans 1. But in the NIV, Romans 1.18 begins a brand new sentence. And you have no clue, really, that he's continuing a prior thought and, in fact, giving an entire justification for a prior thought. And so you lose continuity. You lose thematic and textual continuity because you drop the connective out. A more formal translation, such as the Christian Standard Bible, will add that little gar, that little for or because, and the reader, you, can follow the argument of Paul as he goes through Romans chapter 1. So I'm not asking you to choose one or the other. I'm suggesting that it would be better to have one of both, one of each, one of a formal equivalent, one of a dynamic equivalent, to help you to stay balanced and to see that there's sometimes two ways to translate a different word. Now, if you are familiar with these two translation philosophies, two translation approaches, there are some other factors that ought to be added into this discussion that frequently are never mentioned in the literature or on the web. And uh, they focus on two different words. Uh, the one word is the word tone. Um, <clears throat> just standard English word tone, T-O-N-E. Uh, another way to say it is you want to hear the voice of the speaker, for example, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When you hear Jesus speaking, you want to be able to hear the full force of his voice. You want to hear the vivid words that Jesus or whoever the speaker is actually speaking so you can hear him. And uh, since Jesus is speaking uh, Aramaic and then it's translated into Greek, oftentimes our translators tone down the tone. They blunt the tone 
and it almost becomes an attempt to make the language churchy or stained glass, and you lose the tone. I'm going to give you some examples of where we have a churchy tone rather than a very vivid, graphic, everyday tone. When Jesus, for example, silences a demon, that's the translation we hear in the English. He, he says, be silent or be muzzled. And yet, the idea of the word is, demon, shut up. When you hear that, when you hear Jesus saying to a demon, shut up, you get the message. And it's sure different from hearing someone say, be silent. <laughs> Jesus is doing combat with a demon. A demon represents his arch enemy. And when Jesus speaks, there's power and there's force. Imagine reading a Bible verse and Jesus says, shut up. That's far more graphic. And it is at the same time very accurate for a translation to be that. So I'm talking about tone. I'm talking about voice. And let me uh, pass on a very, very familiar phrase, especially in John's gospel. In the authorized translation, it was verily, verily, I say unto you. <laughs> you can see their Latin influence. The translators of the King James Version were very good in Latin. And verily, or veritas, means truth. A little later, translations got away from verily, verily, and they began to say, truly, truly. Truly, truly, I say unto you. Truly, truly, I say unto you. But if you heard someone say, I swear to you, or you can bet on this, you would get a different message, wouldn't you? And that's essentially what the translators have lost, is they've lost that tone. They've lost that voice. But if you were to read in a passage where Jesus says, you can bet on this, I swear to you, it would not be very conventional, but it would be real and it would be accurate. Uh, there's another uh, example of where tone and voice makes a difference in a translation. Uh, you've heard the phrase or read the phrase in your Bible, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's not very vivid. That's not very plain. It's very churchy. But if you were to say or hear someone say in the Bible, translated this way, Anyone here with two ears had better listen. That would catch the force of what Jesus is saying. Anyone who has ears here, you got two ears, you better listen. That's the force of what, he, what, was what is being said. Of course, it doesn't sound very stained glass. It doesn't sound very liturgical. It sounds very conventional and very tame. And Bible translations, unfortunately, tame Jesus. They tame Paul down. So you can now almost barely recognize the voice and the tone that's coming through that. That's why I love having studied the Greek language. You realize the mistakes that translations make. They're, they're driven by a lot of concerns. They think, uh, like for example, this translation needs to sell. It needs to sell well to a large portion of the audience. We don't want to... Um, uh, how do we say it, uh, offend people's sensibility, their sense of conventionality. But 
I think it's wiser to get the message out and to be clear and to pick up the tone and the voice of what is being said. Uh, we don't want to declaw Jesus. We don't want to declaw the message. And often translations take away the bite when there's intended to be a bite. Then there's diction. Uh, diction is uh, a element of translation which I would consider to be very important. And so I pay attention to that when I'm teaching and when I'm preaching. I'm paying attention not only to the tone of the passage, I'm, I'm paying attention to the voice of the passage, but also I want to pay attention to something called diction, D-I-C-T-I-O-N. For example, how would you read the passage about Levi, whom Jesus called to follow him, if the translation called him a toll collector rather than a tax collector? That's essentially what Levi was, or Matthew. He was a toll collector. If you passed by him on the road and you were carrying a load of fish or a load of nails, you would have to pay toll. You've all been to a toll booth, right? If you get on 275 or I-75, you go through a toll booth. And that's exactly what Matthew was. Most people have never even met a tax collector. <laughs> it's somebody in an office somewhere in, in North County that works for the government. But he doesn't come to your door. He doesn't come for your door asking for your taxes. But a toll collector is someone that you are very familiar with. That's exactly what that phrase means. He's a toll collector. Also, uh, another way of talking about diction is the familiar word Gentile. Obviously, the opposite of a Gentile would be Jewish, and it comes down to two different groups of people in the Bible, Jewish people and Gentiles. But when we run into this word frequently, what the author is telling us is that, that this person is simply a pagan or he's a foreigner. And when we say the word pagan instead of Gentile, or foreigner, we understand much more vividly the place that that person is in. And another one, which um, a couple of more words which I will um, bring up here, because they have to do with our understanding of salvation, is the word, or the Greek word, pistuo. Pistuo, or the noun piste, is the word to trust. Uh, it's the word used um, in John 3.16. Whoever believes in me, or God loved the world so much that whoever believes in him. And I think it is an improvement to all listeners and to all readers if we would start translating, start translating that word pistuo as trust rather than simply as faith. And the reason is, is that in our English language, not the Greek, but in our English language, the word belief does not include loyalty to the person or the thing that you're trusting. Uh, faith simply means that you believe something that happens to be true. But you don't have to have loyalty towards that thing, about that statement, or about that person. But when we say, I'm trusting in Christ, I'm trusting in the finished work of Christ, implicit in that trust is the loyalty. And I must add this, pistis, the noun, or pistua, the verb, includes 
not only a belief in a system or a belief in a person, but it also comes with it also comes with loyalty. Loyalty that involves belief. And if we were to say that and translate that way in our Bibles, it would be much more clear and closer to the truth of what the Greek writers meant when Paul wrote it, when John wrote it, or when Luke wrote it. So one last word on this issue of translation um, is the word repent. Um, <clears throat> this is uh, somewhat a difficult ground. There are some old um, Greek dictionaries that should no longer be in circulation. I'm going to pull one off the shelf here. Um, excuse the silence for a few minutes. But um, years ago, there was something called Vine's Expository Dictionary of Biblical Words. And the, the problem with this dictionary written by, uh, I'm sure, a very sincere, very fine man, Vine, was uh, greatly mistaken on how words are formed to get their meaning. And probably the, the most abused and misused definition in Vine's Expository Dictionary, New Testament words, is focused on the word repent. Repent is made up of two parts, metanoia, and in keeping with Vine's understanding of the Greek language, the word therefore simply means, and he is greatly in error, that it simply means to change your mind. And there are numerous, numerous examples of this error all through his book, which is why no Greek scholar would ever, ever recommend Vine's Dictionary of New Testament Words because it's just chock full of error and mistakes. Uh, if you have a copy, you can keep it on your shelf, but please don't ever look at it to base your study of a Greek word in the New Testament. He writes from the perspective that the two words that make up that word constitute the meaning of the word. But what would you say about the word understand or caterpillar or butterfly or horse fly? A butterfly is not a dairy product with wings. And yet that's the same approach that Vine's Expository Dictionary takes on this subject of repent. Instead, the idea of the word repentance, which you will see borne out hundreds of times throughout the entire Bible, is change. We could say, literally, and be close to the original, instead of saying repent, we would say change your ways, which includes, of course, your thinking, your values, your morals, but it also means to change your life. And this is exactly what Paul preached in Acts chapter 26, when he says we preach that they should repent and prove their repentance by their deeds, by their actions. So one final thing about Bible translations, which I um, hope will be of benefit to you, which is important, is some principles of translation. I would argue that translations need to be inclusive, which means this. Well, for example, uh, I read from a passage this morning from Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 13 and following, where Jesus uses the word anthropos in the vocative case. And it's translated, O man. 
but it's the word person or human being. Uh, in Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Most translations make a mistake here in my judgment. They say that the man of God may be adequate, thoroughly equipped for every good work. But the Greek text very clearly does not say every male. It says every person, anthropos, from which we get, of course, anthropology. It means male and female. It means people. It means human beings. The scripture was given to men and women. The scripture was given to husbands and wives, boys and girls, girls and guys, so that they could be equipped for every good work. And unfortunately, uh, you read that verse and you think, well, the man of God here is going to be equipped for the Bible. Only he can teach. But the Greek is very different. Here's where an inclusive translation is more fair and more accurate to what Paul was saying. Other uh, instances of this inclusivity is where we have the word brother in Greek. And when Paul writes to our congregation, he calls them brothers. Now, wait a minute. Do you think the congregation is made up of all men? I hope not. <laughs> Congregations are made up of all people of all ages. They worship together. They listen together. And in Greek, when you say brothers, it implies and means brothers and sisters. Even Jesus himself uh, made this very, very plain when he talks about his own family, about his brothers. He obviously means his sisters as well. So I would look for a Bible that is inclusive to the point of being accurate, inclusive to include all people, men and women, when it calls for it. Now, this is not the case every time. For example, Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of, of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners. That is referring exclusively to a male. That's referring to Jesus. And Jesus was not a woman the last time I looked. So it's not a carte blanche every time we see the word man. It's got to be men and women. No, it's what the context and what the word itself says. Well, maybe I gave more than what was needed or what was asked for. But most people I know have Bibles. They read them. And often they don't have somebody that they can ask questions about. Uh, why does it say this in this Bible and in this other Bible, it says something completely different. Uh, there are, I haven't answered, of course, all the questions this, uh, this afternoon, but hopefully this has given you a better idea of the difference between a formal equivalent translation rather than a dynamic equivalent. I'd say get them both, use them both, and respect both. They do in the best job that they can based on their particular philosophy. Thank you so much for listening God be with you, and I hope you enjoy and learn much from the scriptures. Thank you for joining us this episode, and remember to send all your questions to questions for Pastor Tim at gmail.com.